Imagine missing out on a life-changing event or world-changing news. Now, I'm not suggesting that you are on a cruise without Wi-Fi when your wife's second cousin's third child got engaged. Now, for the child that got engaged, that's life-changing, world-changing, but for you on the cruise, it's really not. But think about missing out on a piece of news that really would change the course of history. Consider the case of a man named Hirao Onada. Onada was a young man who grew up in Japan, and while Japan was embroiled in the Battle of Second World War, he enlisted at the age of 20 in the Japanese Army. Because he was perceived to be an incredibly intelligent, bright, and fit young man, he was tapped to go to officer school and moved into the intelligence branch of the Japanese Army. In 1944, Onada was sent with a team of other Japanese soldiers uh, into the Philippines to spy. Not uh, live in the midst of everybody, uh, blend into the life of everyone else's kind of a spy, but hiding in the jungles, spying on the American troops kind of spy. 1944. They had a particular mission which did not work out, uh, but they stayed in the jungle and they continued to spy on the enemy forces because they had been given a very clear message by their commanding officer not to come back until their commanding officer told them to return to Japan. 1944. You may remember from world history that in 1945, Japan surrendered and World War II ended. Onada and his friends were in the jungle. They didn't get that news. They continued to live and serve as if the war was still going on. They spied on the villagers. They ran out of supplies. They started to, to live off coconuts and coconut milk and occasionally would steal from villagers to be able to, to continue to survive. One by one, the men either died in a skirmish with villagers or they gave up and went back and surrendered, except for Onada. 1945 turned into 46, into 47, into the 1950s, into the 1960s, until ultimately Hirao Onada was the only member of the Japanese army left in the Philippines. And he still thought World War II was being waged. It became obvious that there was still someone out there and, and so planes would fly overhead and drop leaflets with the news that Japan had surrendered, that the war was over, come out, give yourself up, return home. Onada would look at the leaflets that had been dropped and he would think, this language isn't quite right. This is obviously a ploy by the enemy to get me to surrender. He continued to live in the jungle. They dropped letters and photographs from his family imploring him to come back, to, to, that the war was over. Join your family. Give yourself up. But he held on to the belief that he couldn't do that until he got a very clear message from his commanding officer. He was alone in the jungles of the Philippines living into the 1970s 
as if World War II was still going on. Planes would fly overhead broadcasting messages from loudspeakers. Hirao Nada, the war is over. Come out. He didn't believe it. He wouldn't do it. Finally, in 1974, there was a, a Japanese student who, I guess it was on a 1974 version of a gap year experience. He was just moving around Southeast Asia, and he made his way to the Philippines. He knew the story of Hirao Onada, and he went into the jungle to see if he could find him. And he actually bumped into him. And he said, are, are you Hirao Onada? He said, yes, Amy. He said, the war is over. It's been over for 29 years come out. And he said, I cannot come out until my commanding officer gives me permission. So this college student went back to Japan, talked to the Japanese army, got the name of the commanding officer, found the man who was now in private business. Fortunately, he was still alive. They put him on a plane, flew him to the Philippines. The college student worked his way back into the jungle where he found Onada. And Onada, upon seeing his commanding officer, got the message, the war is over, you can come out, and they walked out of the jungle after 30 years of being there, 29 years after the war actually ended. As an act of symbolic surrender, Onada, still carrying his samurai sword, has surrendered his samurai sword and finally acknowledged that the war had come to an end. 29 years the war had been over, and he couldn't believe it. Imagine missing out on a life-changing, a world-changing event. Consider the case of the man who missed Easter. Listen with me to the story as we read it in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, beginning to read at the 24th verse. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. That was Easter morning. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. May the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing and preservation of these words inspire them for our understanding as well. Thomas is an interesting character. 
The first three Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only mention him once, and, and that's in each of the cases where Jesus names his 12 disciples. That's the only time Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention Thomas. John, on the other hand, tells four stories in which Thomas plays a pivotal role. The first of those stories is in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. This is a story where Jesus gets a message that his friend Lazarus is sick and dying. The disciples say, don't you want to go see about it? And, and Jesus says, well, we will shortly. And Jesus actually delays until Thomas, until uh, Lazarus rather, has died. And then he says to the disciples, let's go tend to Lazarus. The disciples tell him, Lord, that's in Judea, and you were just in Judea, and, and they were trying to stone you. Are you sure you want to go there? And Jesus says, yes, let's go. Thomas says, let's go along with him. We may as well die also. I read that one time, and it occurred to me that Thomas is the Eeyore of the disciples. <laughs> oh, well, let's go along with him. We may as well die too. He's just looking for a dark cloud to obscure a silver lining. In the 14th chapter of John's gospel, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, uh, some of you will be very familiar with this passage, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and get you and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Here comes Thomas, the Eeyore of the disciples again, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Thomas is looking in that glass, and he says, my goodness, it is half empty. In the 20th chapter of the passage we just read, you hear more about Thomas. And then in the 21st chapter of John's gospel, uh, in one of the post-resurrection appearances, the, Peter says, I don't know what else to do, guys, so I'm going fishing. And it identifies Thomas as being with him. Thomas says, I'll go along with you. They go fishing, and it's while they're fishing, Jesus appears to the disciples on the beach. But it's in this story in particular that we learn more than anything else about Thomas. While the Bible says that we read, it says a week later, the Greek actually says it was eight days. Can you imagine living for eight days with everyone else telling you a piece of news that you missed out on? Leaflets dropped from the sky, loudspeakers blaring out the message, letters and pictures from your family dropped from the sky. You don't believe it. The disciples saying to Thomas, for eight days, we've seen the Lord. You know, you get 12 men together, there are going to be some interesting dynamics. They're going to, there's going to be, you get two men together, there's going to be competition. You get 10 men together, there's going to be a lot of competition. There's going to be rivalries. There's always going to be somebody that doesn't like somebody else or somebody that just gets on the other person's last nerve. I find myself wondering what the dynamics among the disciples were and, and how those disciples may have told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Were they kind of sassy? We saw Jesus and you didn't nanny nanny boo boo. Or were they just kind of 
poking at him. So we saw Jesus. Ha! Or were they pleading with him? Dude, seriously, we saw him. He was here. It's real. Day after day. I don't know why Thomas stayed around them. At some point, you know, you'd begin to think that maybe Jesus showed up and he didn't want me to see, be there. So maybe I'm not part of this party any longer. And Thomas may have wanted to just separate himself from the rest of the disciples, but he didn't do it. I found myself wondering, what did Thomas say to them when they kept saying, we've seen the Lord? One of my favorite comic strips that appears in the paper is a comic strip called Zits. It about, it's about a mom and a dad and their teenage son, and it is so dadgum accurate. A couple of days ago, one of those was in the paper. We won't put it up and let you see it. The dad says to the mom, I think it's fantastic that you're sketching, honey. She's taking up a new hobby. Oh, thank you, she says. You just let me know if there's anything I can do for you, men. Don't ever say this to your wife. You just let me know if there's anything I can do for you. Well, you can cook dinner. So in the last frame, there he is, cooking dinner. And Jeremy, the son, says, another hollow gesture backfire on you, Dad? And what does the dad say? Zip it. Maybe Thomas said, zip it. We've seen the Lord. Zip it. We've seen the Lord. Zip it. We said, Lord, zip it! Until eight days later, they're together. Why Thomas is still with them, can't imagine. And Jesus appears. And he says what he said the night or, or the day of Easter, peace be with you. And then he approaches Thomas and he holds out his hands and he says, look my hands, put your finger in the nail marks. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas, with his hand on Jesus' ribcage, with his fingers in his side, says, my Lord, my God. And his life is changed forever. This is a story, you know, that gives rise to the phrase, doubting Thomas. Any time we're with someone and they don't believe what the rest of us believe, we kind of dismiss them and say, oh, you're just a doubting Thomas. But remember what Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. And I can't help but wonder if the omniscient Lord, when he said this next phrase, wasn't thinking about you and me when he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You know, there's a difference between doubt and disbelief. I think disbelief is when you are confronted with the facts and you simply and categorically refuse to accept it. Doubt is when you're looking at something and you think, I'm not sure that'll hold me, but you try it out anyway. And you discover that you do have the capacity to believe. And remember, at the end of that passage that we read together, John says, this has been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. A number of years ago, I stumbled across uh, a little thing called the Stages of Faith Development. 
in one of the books that Ken Boa Ken, uh, co-wrote with another author. And it's a really very simple and amazingly clarifying process to understand how you and I come to faith. And I want to show that to you right now. The first stage is what they call experiential faith. This is the faith that, that I had when I was a child, when mom and dad said, I don't care whether you don't want to go to church, we're going to church. And you're going to go there and you're going to have a good time. They dragged me to church. We've all been through it. Some of you are going through it with your children right now. It's the faith that we experience because we spend time around people. We interact with people who have faith. It's not mine. I experience it. The second stage is what's called affiliative faith. This is faith that, that you hold on to because you are a part of a community. Maybe you've moved from Dayton, Ohio. You now live in Alpharetta, and you are a part of a community of faith. You have moved to this place, and, and you hang out with a group of people who go to Peachtree Presbyterian Church, and so you kind of get caught along in, in the vacuum of them going to church, and, and you go to church with them, and you hang out with them, and there's a belief, but it's really because you hang out with, you've affiliated with this group of people and you believe it because it's what they believe. It's less experienced and more beginning to affiliate with it. The third stage is the squirmy stage. It's called the inquisitive stage. This is when our kids reach middle school or high school and they begin to ask questions that we really don't want them to ask, partly because we don't quite know how to explain the answers to them. They begin to tell us that they don't believe, that uh, it's all a myth, that it's a hoax, that there are constructs that make no sense whatsoever, that all those people at church are hypocrites. If we don't allow our children to ask the questions, if we don't allow them to go through this inquisitive stage, their faith is going to stall out and maybe stop. But if we allow them to ask those questions, if we allow them to, to dig into the meat of what it is that we believe, they come out, last but not least, with a faith that is called owned faith. I own it. I've explored it. I've dug into it. I've read the scriptures. I've tested the faith. And it's mine. It makes sense to me. It's real. A week ago tonight, uh, I think it was NBC, aired a live musical production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Any of you watch it? You know, that's right, this is the Presbyterian Church. We don't raise hands in worship. Um, I, I watched a little of it last Sunday night simply because I was curious to see how, honest to goodness, rock stars would perform in this. Uh, Lib and I and our family saw it on stage a couple of years ago, and on the way home that night, I said to Lib, remind me the next time I say, hey, let's go see Jesus Christ Superstar, that I really don't need to go see it. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit of a biblical and theological snob. Jesus Christ Superstar ends with a crucifixion. Uh, it hones in on the humanity of Jesus and doesn't really deal with the divinity of Jesus. But I wanted to see this last Sunday night to see 
uh, how they performed. I'll watch a little bit of it. John Legend played the role of Jesus. Uh, Sarah Bareilles plays Mary Magdalene. Um, Brandon Victor Dixon played Judas. Two days earlier, Friday a week ago, there was an article in the New York Times about the cast. It was interesting. John Legend said that he grew up in the Pentecostal faith. His dad was a pastor, his grandfather was a pastor, that his mom was the choir director, his grandmother was the organist. He was there every time the church doors opened. He said, I really don't practice the faith any longer. Sarah Borella said that she grew up in the Catholic church going to mass every day. She went to a Catholic school. She said, I've really kind of don't practice the faith any longer. I enjoy going to mass with my parents when I visit them because it's nostalgic. This is the one name I have trouble with. Brandon Victor Dixon, who played Judas, grew up in the Episcopal church, went to an Episcopal school. He said at some point his family left the Episcopal church and went to a Unitarian church, which really isn't a church, it's more philosophy. And he said, I don't practice religion any longer. Religion is a political construct. I'm more a spiritual person. Spirituality is a social construct. I, I don't know what that means, frankly. <laughs> the other interesting character played Herod. You know who it was? Alice Cooper. Interestingly enough, Alice Cooper in this same article said that he was raised in the Baptist church. His, his grandfather was a pastor and he was there all the time. And he said when he grew up and, and got away from home, he went as far away from the Christian faith as he could possibly get and dove into the sex, drugs, rock and roll of the 70s. He said he woke up at one point and realized the direction his life was going in and he decided that he needed to get back to the single most important thing in his life, his relationship with Jesus Christ. Alice Cooper? <laughs> Alice Cooper goes to church every Sunday. Alice Cooper goes to a men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings. Alice Cooper reads the Bible every day. Alice Cooper. He said when he returned to the faith and fully embraced being a follower of Jesus, all of the people in the music industry around him said, but look at what you're giving up to be a Christian. He said, what, dying of alcoholism? He wouldn't have it any other way today. He is a sold out follower of Jesus. Those other three, I think, had gone through that experiential and affiliative faith stages, but had never really dug into the inquisitive stage. Alice Cooper hit a point in his life where he had to dig into it and really let the faith become his. The question I put to you today is, where are you in that process? 
Are you like Thomas standing on the outer ring of the disciples with your hands in your pocket saying, unless Jesus appears and lets me put my finger in his side, I won't believe? Or are you like Alice Cooper who's willing to embrace the questions, dig into it, and take a long, hard look at it and let the faith become real to you? Where are you in that story? Have you yet owned your faith? It's a faith that Jesus invites you to make your own. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He was talking about you.